My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Hello, everyone. I wanted to add a quick note before my interview with Quinn Mason. Uh, I wanted to apologize because it's been a tough semester with a lot of the crazy things I've had going on in my life. And, uh, I wasn't quite on my game for this one. Quinn was very patient with me and was very generous with his time. And it was an exhilarating interview. I hope you enjoy it. <coughs> awesome. Quinn Mason. Hey, hey, how's it going? It's, uh, it's going well. I'm nice. having the next couple of weeks off. I just got back from DC. So, yeah. What were you doing in DC? Uh, I made my conducting debut with the National Symphony Orchestra. That's incredible. What what all it, were you conducting? It was I was pulling double duty on that concert. Um, it was the world premiere of um, oh the orchestra premiered a piece of mine. Uh, it was called "This Is the Rope," which is based on a children's book by Jacqueline Woodson. She narrated, uh, and that was conducted by my friend um, Kyle Dixon, and that was commissioned by the Kennedy Center. And wow. then I conducted the opening work on that program, William Grant Still's poem for orchestra. That's awesome. Uh, how did you uh, get involved with that commission? Uh, well, they, I, I have no idea how they found me. They, I guess they did a nationwide search for composers and then they narrowed it down. And then they ultimately asked Jacqueline Woodson, who would you like to set your words to music? And they gave her music exa examples and she picked me. As far as how oh. I ended up in that search, I don't know. Just kind of That's happened. awesome. But that's exhilarating. Uh, what was conducting that kind of an orchestra like? It was a great learning experience. You know, they play really behind the beat. So uh, first time I got to rehearse them, it was uh, where we felt each other a little bit to get, mm -hmm. get used to, you know, my style of conducting and also their style of playing. But ultimately, they we got we we got we we got along quite well. The performances were beautiful and they sang for me quite well. That's awesome. Uh, what kind of groups do you normally conduct? Oh, orchestras. Awesome. That's sweet. Yeah, I've worked with um, everything from professional orchestras, regional orchestras, youth orchestras. That's, that's awesome. mostly, that's where I spent, that's where most of my time is spent. Oh, that's incredible. Um, uh, where did, did you con like study conducting anywhere? Well, see, I guess started with conducting in high school because uh, mm -hmm. um, my band director was very supportive. He let me conduct the band, and I was also a percussion section leader, so I conducted a lot of sectionals. That's awesome. Um, and so, really, I didn't. Well, so I, I did take one semester of conducting in college, but most of it mm -hmm. was um, people calling me to do my own pieces uh, at places. And That's you know, awesome. the more I, the more I did it, the more I got. I got better at it, and so far conducted well over thirty orchestras. 
Um, That's incredible. I, I don't have a, yeah, I don't have a degree in conducting. It's funny how that works. Yeah. How did you start getting people to call you to conduct your own work? Well, you know, people, they heard, they, they talked to each other and they found out I can conduct. And when they found out you can conduct, you know, the people want you to yeah. see, see how you do, see how you do your own pieces. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's how that got started. That's awesome. Uh, do people ever perform your works and insist that you don't conduct? Not really. I mean, if they, some, it, it, it's cool when I get the chance to sit back and listen. Yeah. I always like doing that. Um, and it's, it's always, cause it's nice to study other people's conducting too. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I visit an orchestra, I bring scores to everything on the program. So if one day I do get to conduct those pieces, I will have learned them already. Kind of yeah. like an assistant conductor, but I, awesome. I do like to watch other people do my music and see how they perceive something I created and how they interpret it and things like that. And, you know, as much as possible, I like to step back and like watch them work. You know, they ask my input. I'm right there. But yeah, it's always nice to listen. That's awesome. Um, is there a particular group you've conducted that sticks in your memory? Yeah, and it's a group I've had the pleasure of returning to um, recently. It was the Harmonia Orchestra. Um, it was my, I guess, first time conducting in public wow. a concert. Um, and it was, again, I was sharing the podium with the music director. It was February 2020, and it was the world premiere of my Joyous Trilogy with the Harmonia Orchestra. And that piece is a huge hit of mine. And since I visited them, I've, according to them, had very much success. And so I recently returned to them about three weeks ago, and I did uh, the, the William Grant Still piece I was just talking about, mm -hmm. excuse me, which... Mm -hmm. I ultimately took the national. That's awesome. Uh, how was CBDNA? It was interesting. It was a lot of fun. It was it was nice to uh, see a lot of people that I had only heard about, see some old friends, make some new mm -hmm. friends, and things like that. Um, and quite a funny situation. Uh, we had it was a little bit of a recurring joke at CBDNA where. Uh, do you, have you heard of the um, the composer and conductor Scott Burma? I don't think so. He, I think he teaches at Western Michigan University. But anyways, when I was riding to the the campus from the Atlanta airport, uh, he was on there. <laughs> he was on the same shuttle. And so we struck up a conversation. We had a great talk, and then subsequently, every so every three or so hours for the next, I think, three or so day, days at CBDNA or four days, I kept seeing him. <laughs> and I was, I kept walking around I'm like, wait a minute, it's Scott Burma again. And so we, I saw him at the reception after uh, University of South Carolina. And I was like, look, from now on, if I see you again, we have to take a shot for every time I see you. <laughs> so for the next two days after that, we were counting. Okay, that's one shot. That's two shots. <laughs> and then at, at the end, it was like, I think 20 shots. We didn't do 20 shots. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just kept seeing him yeah, around. That'd be a, like, that'd be a lot. <laughs> yeah. We die. Like, <laughs> no kidding. Um, and so I, I listened to your, um, the recording of your fourth symphony a couple of times, partially in preparation for this interview. But um, one of my friends was at the conference and 
just it spoke so highly of like how moving the piece was um and i was reading the program notes and i was a little bit surprised but really kind of interested when um there's the part where you mentioned that it was uh influenced by the music of david Maslanka, and i was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit yeah and and in in as a whole i believe my fourth symphony is my thank you essay or note or letter to dr david Maslanka because he taught me so much so i actually got to work with him in February of 2017, nice. I got to study with him for about a week. This was the same year he passed. So, but it was very unexpected because he was in great health, great spirits when I met him. And before then, I didn't really know much about band music until I, you know, prepping, same same thing you did for this. So prepping mm -hmm. to meet him, I listened to his fourth symphony. Nice. Um, specifically a recording by Dallas Wins and Jerry Junkin. That's a very yeah, famous that's recording. The, that's the first recording. Um, th this is a conversation I was really excited to have once I read those program notes because I've had the chance to work with David a bit too. And I think I know Symphony 4 better than I know maybe any piece of music. Yeah, it's it's a very, yeah, it's definitely a cornerstone in the yeah. band literature. But I would even go as far as argue it's as great of a symphony as a Mahler symphony. Oh, or anything like that without like it's doubt a, it's without a great doubt. american symphony i i think it is I, it might be one of the finest works of classical music ever written by someone from the western hemisphere <laughs> i would have to i would have to agree with that because it's just like first of all it's about such a deep and touching subject it, first of all it, it speaks mm -hmm. highly of the piece that it still gets played to this day it premiered in 1994 yeah and it still gets played to this day mm -hmm. uh nearly 20 30 years ago in the premiere but you know I, I listened to that piece and i didn't even know a band could sound like that see i was just yeah. used to uil reading charts and susa marches and all that and yeah some some very bombastic band works by a composer a colleague of mine that we all know and love so i won't say names but i think you know who i'm talking about <laughs> um but he uh, that's what i thought band music sounded like Yes. Until I heard Dr. Maslanka's Fourth Symphony. And I was like, mm -hmm. it, it spoke to me on a spiritual level. So I was very excited to work with him after that. And then subsequently that week I spent with him was, uh, it was very much filled with uh, lessons on how to depict and speak to the human experience through music, mm -hmm. what it may, means to make music, not from brain to brain, but from soul to soul. And and yeah. very very much. Um, oh, that's awesome. Just the spiritual side of music yeah. making. I would have to. I would even go as far as to say like that work that week changed my entire approach to music making. Because now that yeah. whenever I go to share music with someone and I go to write music, it's very much based on spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. What did y'all talk about with like the spiritual connectivity? You know, he was really into the, you know, the doxologies and things mm -hmm. like that and the religious side of music, or not, 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 not specifically re religious, but, you know, spiritual. Mm -hmm. And it, it was very much what it means to be human and to found, find a way to insert that into your music. Yeah. And, and just so it has this kind of like human element in, to it that people can connect to and performers can connect to and all of that. That's why, you know, most of his um, scores are handwritten. And whenever yeah. you look at a 
a handwritten David Maslanka score that exudes this kind of energy, kind of like he's in the room with you. Yeah, you know, it's exhilarating. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he, I remember when I worked with him, he was working on his 10th symphony at the time, mm -hmm. which he ultimately did not get to finish. But I remember him telling me, you know, I remember asking him, what is the secret to writing band music? I asked him that question. And you know what he told me? He oh. said, there is no secret. He said, I just, I, I insert myself into the music and let the music speak for itself. Yeah. That right there, I think that stuck with me. That was, again, that was February of 2017. I still remember it like mm -hmm. it was yesterday. So ultimately, uh, later that year, he passed. It was in August. So I was at TCU at the time. And I was so affected by his passing that I wrote, I think, my third or fourth band piece ever called Soul to Soul, mm -hmm. which still remains one of my most popular band pieces. It gets played to this day. And it was my kind of tribute to, to Dr. Maslanka. So it contained, it, it opens with a chorale, much like he would have written in one of his pieces. And then I include a quote from his Eighth Symphony, another great piece of music. Yeah. And then- Which part did you quote? I know the Eighth Symphony so well. It's the um, the chorale theme in the third movement, right yeah. after the soprano sax solo. I like that part. That's awesome. So, but I took that, but I inserted my own music on top of it to kind of pay tribute to him. That's cool. And then- near the end of it and there's a chorale called on death which ultimately blends with the opening clarinet chorale but it ends hopefully so after that i wrote that and um and some years after that i was quite suddenly commissioned for my fourth symphony uh the commission being you know i was in the hallway going to class the band director comes puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes write me a piece for the wind ensemble no time limit no instrumentation limit and then he just walks off to get Chick-fil-A. I'm just standing there like, did I just get a commission? That's pretty I, sweet. I think I did. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was the commission for the Fourth Symphony. It was a commission and a half because even though I was asked to write it, I wasn't paid to write it. Yeah. Um. So I spent about a year working on that. And I knew, and we was actually, the first version was supposed to premiere in May of 2020. Alas, that never happened. Yeah. And so a couple of years after that, it was honorable mention in the ASCAP Morton Gold Awards. In fact, awesome. it was the only it was the only band piece out of the 34 entries that was um, noticed or given oh. a notice that year, which I think it was the last year. Yeah. The only band piece, which was very wow. unusual. Yeah. So naturally, that aroused a lot of interest and some conductors, Tony Marinello included, yeah. um, hit me up asking to do the premiere. But one of them, only one of them beat everybody to the punch. And that was Dr. Andy Traxel of UNT. Mm -hmm. That's what's on the video. Yeah. So, yeah. How does this how tie into the Fourth Symphony? Well, I wanted to write something, a symphonic essay that was on the scope of his Fourth Symphony, while at the same time paying tribute to everything he taught me and looking towards the future. And, you know, a great moment about that CBDNA performance. I'm definitely talking too much, but I'll wrap it up here. Um no, dude, take as long as you want. I love a long form interview. <laughs> it's fine. It's just fine. It's basically um, I'm coming to the end of the story and a bit of a full circle moment um, among the listeners of the Fourth Symphony at that CBDNA performance was Matthew Maslanka, Dr. Oh, Maslanka's nice. son. Yeah. He, and he came up to me and was like, it's a great tribute to my dad, but it sounds completely you. And I said, thank you. That's awesome.
So that's uh, the story of the Fourth Symphony. That's awesome. Uh, how do you go about instilling your own voice into your music? Uh, one of the things I find a lot, especially with the composers that um, I, I see here on, uh, like in school, is like um, a lot of people are, especially in the early stages of the, their career, tend to try to imitate the composers they admire. And only once they've like efficiently blended like everything into the pot can they like kind of find their own voice. What do you? What did you do to find yours? I definitely did that. I did a lot of that, <laughs> imitating composers. Um, a lot of what what is called imitative composition. Mm -hmm. So I did write a lot of pieces that sounded like my favorite composers. I even went yeah. through a Philip Glass phase. Imagine yeah, I did that. too. <laughs> Where all I wrote was arpeggios. Um. Because I still listen to Philip Glass. Yeah. I think he sounds cool. And nobody can yeah, do it like too. he does. Yeah. But, Philip Glass is incredible. Yeah. But just listening to all those different styles and trying to imitate them. Really, I, I would have to say, put some tools in my toolbox. You know, studying how Mozart crafted a symphonic yeah. movement versus how Brahms crafted one. You know, versus how um, Beethoven crafted one. Just looking at yeah. how they used their compositional voices uh informed mind so now whenever i go to craft something it's very much using the stuff i've learned from them but utilizing my own kind of mu musical direction and um harmonic language i've developed over the years and um style of composition that i've learned from multiple teachers um so all of that yeah it's, a, it, it's been a long journey all good journeys are Oh yeah, and it's still going. It's not absolutely. over. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're on the up and up, man. <laughs> Something like that. Hopefully for forever. That's the goal, right? Um, uh, what um elements of like your compositional language do you think are that you're bringing to the fore right now? Like what kind? Like what kind of harmonies are you finding yourself really attracted to? What kind of rhythms do you find yourself really attracted to? For some strange reason, I like a lot of six in my harmonies and a lot of pentatonic chords. I, I don't know why that is, but it gives my music this unique nostalgic feeling to it yeah. that I found that like um, a string orchestra piece like Svidani uses a lot of that and stuff like that. And it's also with my orchestration, too, and how I write for strings um, where I used to use a lot of closed voicing to make make kind of get the sound to be homogenous and blend yeah. blend very well it's um utilizing nose and then with rhythms uh because of my background as a percussionist uh, a lot of my percussion writing is unique as you've heard in the fourth symphony with the tam tam battle and all of that yeah, that's so awesome. utilizing yeah it's just utilizing stuff like that that stuff i picked over up over the years and stuff i'm still kind of experimenting with uh, you know, all of these, all the unique musical experiences find its way into my style somehow. Style that is still, I'm still trying to figure out what the definition of my style is. I don't know for sure yet. Yeah. Uh, do you think that good composers all go through multiple phases in their career? If I guess like, um, somebody that sticks out to me is Stravinsky because Stravinsky had so many like such clearly defined periods and every time he reinvented himself it was like perfect yeah yeah I and mean, but he still sounded like himself that was yeah you still tell us a Stravinsky piece which is very inspiring to me because it's like man how to 
how's this guy writing in so many different styles, but we still know it's him. Like, yeah, yeah he's kind of like a chameleon almost. Yeah, I think Freddie Hubbard kind of strikes that note too. Uh, what a bad pun. I didn't even intend to do that. Um, oh, well, you're a poet and you didn't even know it. <laughs> I wish. Um, yeah, I, I, so I'm, I'm in a jazz composition class this semester and uh, we had to do a report on a jazz composer of our choice and my group chose Freddie Hubbard and it was really interesting studying all of his music because very much in the same way as Stravinsky, like he kind of updates his style with the times, but it always sounds like Freddie and there's like this smooth modal jazz that just like blossoms into something that goes through a lot more chord changes in the same mode but like it's still this like really fluid like sound painting where it's like uh, uh, for a little more objectivity i don't know if you've studied much freddie hubbard his music is really interesting in that like the thing that changes the most is like the sounds he brings in he was very unapologetic about saying like yeah let's have synth with a big band because why not which is yep. awesome. And then uh, one of the other things he would do is he would, he would have like a minor seven chord. Like, so we'll have like G minor seven and A minor seven. And those are the only two chords that will alternate in the chart for the vast majority of it, which doesn't sound like a really interesting progression. But what's interesting is when you spell those chords vertically, you just get um, the G Dorian, or is it G Dorian? I think it's G Dorian mode just like spelled vertically and so it just creates a vamp where like there's through constant common tone modulation because g's always there you just have this like modal color that changes a little slightly and just tells the soloist like play whatever you want oh yeah which and is really you, which is really kind of interesting i mean yeah you see that in stravinsky too like mm -hmm. he had a certain way of spelling chords in his orchestration that just gave the orchestra a unique sound and whenever you just hear like like say the opening of the infernal dance of the firebird or or the first movement of the symphony of three movements it's just the way those harmonies are spelled the way everything is orchestrated is just like uniquely him and so that's not, that kind of sounds like what you're describing him yeah out here yeah i think that's exactly it um who um, apart, so we talked about Philip Glass. We've talked about David Maslanka. What other composers have like really influenced your writing? Definitely John Adams, um, especially his two mid nineteen eighties pieces, uh, Har Harmony Lyra, Harmonium, very beautiful pieces, uh, very uh, colorful orchestral writing that inspired me from a young age. And um, I actually got to meet John Adams a couple of years ago. And I got wow, to tell him. that's incredible. Yeah, he came to Dallas to conduct. The the Dallas Symphony and that my friends at the Dallas Symphony were nice enough to make the introduction and he we talked a little bit and and I told him you know one day I'm going to do Harmony Labor from memory I'm going to conduct it from memory he said you'd be the first person to do that that'd be awesome so but, but he was he was really cool and him and uh and Esa Pekka Solomon as a as a wow. both a composer and a conductor he's a very nice guy I actually got yeah. to spend time with Esa Pekka early last year that's awesome um, and we talked, it's funny, we, we were sitting in his office at the San Francisco Symphony, and all we did, all we talked about was composition, even though he was conducting the Rite of Spring that week. Yeah. So it's like, we, we sat and we found that we work similarly. Yeah. Like we both come up with our ideas, we let our ideas sit for a little bit, and then we kind of let those ideas gesticulate. I don't even know if that's a word I just said. Yeah. <laughs> or gestate. Like yeah, like marinate. Yeah, mar marinate or bloom or blossom yeah. into 
larger ideas. And Esabeka works that way, and so do I. And so we got along very well in that. It's funny because we were supposed to meet for five minutes. We ended up in there for 40 minutes. Nice. So when I walked out. That's awesome. Like, yeah. That's how you know it's a good hang. <laughs> well, he was like, well, the, the, his assistant was like, you know, he doesn't spend 40 minutes with people. He must have really liked you. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I've I've never met him. He's somebody I'd really like to meet. I watched him conduct the CSO when he was composer in residence there. That would have been in 2012. I mean, ages ago. He's 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 great. He's a great musician. Yeah, um, I, I've seen uh, he he conducted a load of um, Eastern European music. He was doing like the Yenicek Symphonietta paired with um, Nix, which is one of his uh, symphonic poems. It's like a really eclectic concert. Um, just because you, you've touched on it already, can you talk a bit about like what your creative process for a new piece is? Well, it depends on the piece, you know, depends on how large it is, depends mm -hmm. on the deadline, of course. Um, and with orchestral pieces in specific, you know, usually those are commissioned some years in advance. So that gives me time to think about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, usually... I come up with the ideas first, the musical ideas, and I kind of see where those, what comes, what kind of spawns out of those ideas and where mm -hmm. those ideas will take me. Can and you sometimes do, that's how, I was just oh. going to say, like, could you describe like what a fast turnaround would be like, and then maybe what a long turnaround would be like? Well, an example of a fast turnaround would be this, this piece I'm working on right now for the Hartford Symphony, who I'm currently, mm -hmm. or Artists in Residence. This oh, piece awesome. is, this piece is doing like five days, but I haven't started writing it yet. But even though I know how it's going to go, uh, it was literally commissioned like in like October or something like that as part of my mm -hmm. residency. So I really have to come up with ideas really fast versus a longer turnaround of, say, this piece for the Utah Symphony, which was commissioned about two years ago. It's a trombone concerto. Oh, and nice. I spent time with the, I spent several times with the soloist getting what he wants me to do. And then the Utah Symphony, getting familiar with them. Now that they've played about, I think, four of my pieces already. I'm, oh, that awesome. orchestra's familiar with me, and I'm familiar with them. And so, yeah, that's that, that's a, that's an example of, of an opportunity where I've had to do some research mm -hmm. with the Utah Symphony um, versus the Hartford Symphony, which um, I, I've known them for now several months, and I recently conducted them, and they've performed my music before. Even though it's a fast turnaround, I know exactly what I'm going to write for them. So, That's awesome. two examples. Yeah, I, I guess my next question would be: Can can you go in depth? What's like the creative process like for a faster turnaround? Yeah, just coming up with the ideas. Usually, the ideas yeah. come fast, and um, writing those ideas down and creating a kind of roadmap for mm -hmm. myself about how the piece is going to progress, where it's going to go. Sometimes I end up following that map. Sometimes not. But it's mm -hmm. nice to have that foundation. And once I have that foundation, pretty much everything else just comes naturally. Do you like write it down and then like create like, I, I think about, um, I, cause I do a similar thing. I think about pre-writing the way I would pre-write for an essay. I have like an outline of the piece and like, sometimes I'll sketch out a couple of harmonies at the piano that I, I'm, I'm thinking about, or um, I'll have like the form and like how I think some of the textures are gonna go. And I really try, like, I try to really only plan stuff when I'm like out on a run or like meditating for a long period of time. So I can really get to like my subconscious and figure out what I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's, um, 
just making sure that the ideas that I have, I do write them down. Mm-hmm. I write them all by hand still, but I do the larger composition in my computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, taking what I've written down, I found that I remember stuff better when I write it down by hand. Yeah, me too. And so having that kind of physical, putting that, phys- making it physical and uh, bringing it into existence that way really helps out, I find. That's awesome. Um, so I guess like if we contrasted that with something like a longer turnaround, what does an idea blooming into existence look like? If you want to use one of like your previous commissions as an example, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my very first commission, Inner City Rhapsody, which was commissioned by the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, premiered in 2019, was commissioned in 2017. So I had two years to work on this piece. Wow. And so I had an entire summer, I had, I had because it was commissioned in late 2017, I had the entire summer of 2018 when I was at Brevard to come up with ideas that way. I know the title came first, Inner City Rhapsody. And I knew, you know, they gave me 20 minutes with the orchestra. I knew I, knew, I wanted to write something like a, a symphonic statement. So finding a way to... Uh, uh, fill out 20 minutes of orchestra music is always a challenge. Mm-hmm. So for that particular piece, I came up with uh, a three movement kind of progression, uh, nostalgia, str- struggle, emergence. And I came up with my ideas that way. And uh, from there, just, you know, based on those three key words, um, the composition of it came quite easily because all I had to do was figure out what went in each of those sections and how to make them progress so the way they sound natural. And now that piece is, it still gets played. It's still That's actually awesome. the Memphis, the Memphis symphony did it in February. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. and, but it's, it's, it's a, it's another piece that I wrote that very much is me mm-hmm. and kind of connect, it connects the audiences, but you know, I had like a whole year or so to write that piece. So mm-hmm. Do you have- it all started with the story. Do you have many pieces that you feel like aren't you anymore? Definitely the the piece that started my career. Can you um, you want to talk a bit about that? I guess I can. No, I'm, I'm, that just, I'm, that, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, let's see. That's uh, just fascinating. Yeah, it's still online too. You can go look mm-hmm. at it. You know, Sweet. if you dare. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, the, so the piece is called Masonian Rondo. It's for brass quartet. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it very casually in 2013. So I wrote it about 10 years ago. I wrote it because I was, because I, I wanted to, right? Uh, and, you know, nobody really plays it anymore, but it, it, I say it started my career because I entered it. The next Notes High School Composition Awards was a national contest um, when I was a senior in high school. It won. I was one of seven winners out of 240 wow. applicants nationwide. Um, and it was a big deal. So I, that piece started my career that way. But I listen to it now and I go, man, this is not me at my best, you know. Then again, that this happens, you know, you think about what, what you were like when you were younger and you're glad you're not that no more. That's kind of what this piece is like. I gotcha. And of course, none of my Philip Glass stuff. <laughs> nice. Um, how did, so I think you've touched on something kind of interesting, this idea of like doing composite or competitions early, um, especially early in your career. Um, do you, do you do competitions? Well, I mean, probably not anymore now that you're getting like 
big boy commissions all the time, like, or at least bigger commissions than like, uh, like a younger student like me for sure. But like, um, do you think submitting to competitions is important for young composers? Yeah, I can answer this question in two parts. First of all, I still kind of enter contests, like I just just because I want to see what happens. Like the the Morton Gould Awards, I've only gotten honorable mention in that three times. I've never won. Only. <laughs> so, yeah, only three, three honorable mentions. So I at least have one more year to win it. If I don't win mm-hmm. it by the time I, I think I'm 28, because I'm 27 now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm. That's it. I'm done. Uh, and then, of course, there's also, you know, big band awards that I have not tried my hand at that. Mm-hmm. Some of like Tony Marinello recommended I try to enter the Ravelli competition or the Ostwald or one of those two. So I'm going to try my hand at that simply because Tony Marinello recommended that I do it. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have done it. But like that. And then I think for the adventurous student, one who really wants to make their voice known to the world, and know what it's like to kind of, you know, enter a contest, you know, it's always worth a shot. You know, it's really, it's, it really takes a lot of confidence and a lot of humility to put your, throw your hat in the ring and put your composition in a contest, you know, because mm-hmm. you just never know what people are looking for, what the judges are yeah. looking for. Sometimes they tell you, but, you know, I always recommend that, you know, the, the student, and I'm going to say this because I'm not a student anymore. I have not been one for a while, but the student is, um, I recommend that the student always enter the in free contests. Mm-hmm. And I always look carefully into the free contests. There are certain contests that, you know, for um, organizations that don't really pay their musicians mm-hmm. or they pull the prize money for, for the winner. I don't really agree with that. Yeah. You know, if it looks fishy, it probably is fishy. Mm-hmm. So I always, you know, make it a point to send interested young young composers that reach out to me uh, free contests mm-hmm. contests that have no stipulations yeah. and things like that you know trusted contests and it's it's i think it's recommended that they really want to just try their hand and see what will happen and put the put their voice out there because you never know who's listening you know you could lose but somebody could listen to your piece and go man i want to do that with my group and you know that's happened before that's awesome. That's happened before with the uh, ASU. Mm-hmm. I didn't win that contest, but I got honorable mention in it after I was the only honorable mention. And I got that because like, you know, he was like, I think I he had me write something to talk about my musical voice and why I write music. So I wrote that. It was very convincing. He gave me honorable mention. And now I'm working with him now on a commission, a co-commission actually between three college orchestras. That's awesome. So you never know how this stuff will come full circle, yeah. you know, just why not throw your head into the ring? When did you start writing for orchestra? When I was 10. Whoa, that's awesome. When did, like, when did, was your first orchestral piece premiered? That wasn't premiered until I was 22. Cool. What, can so you I tell me about the piece? Tw- no, it was the inner city Rhapsody I was just telling oh, you Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad. That was my very first orchestral commission. Mm-hmm. And, but, and. Like I said, I started fairly early and I had about 12 years to work on my craft. And I've spent a lot of time around the symphony orchestra. Uh, I had mentors that were in the orchestra. So I used to go to a lot of rehearsals, met a lot of musicians, talked to a lot of musicians. Uh, and I think I've now spent, let's see, about 17 years of my life around the orchestra. 
Whoa, that's incredible. Yeah, you probably it's have an a, unbelievable understanding of that ensemble. It's it's a huge part of my personal and the professional identity. That's so awesome. when I have people in the band world, it's trying to say, oh, yeah, they're trying to lure me away. It's like my heart's somewhere else, you know? Yeah. I Do you find that it's difficult to find a balance between those two worlds or is it easier than people think it is? Well, you're correct in saying that they're two different worlds. I would have to say that because everybody is, mm-hmm. everybody is, it's different wherever you go. Like mm-hmm. in the band world, we have some people that are famous that are not so famous in the orchestral world. Uh, even though the, some of the respect is mutual, like the, yeah. the former conductor of the New York Philharmonic loves Jerry Junkin. Can you believe that? Um, but you know, it's definitely two different worlds. I mean, I find that a, a lot of uh, my younger colleagues um, are, are are gravitating towards the band world simply because it's easy to get your music played by mm-hmm. a band than it is by a symphony orchestra. And as someone who, of course, has spent more than half of his life in the symphony orchestra, it's still hard for me to get pieces played. Yeah, it may seem it may seem easy, but it's definitely hard. And um, as far as a balance between the two, it's um, you know, each each world has its own different, you know, we have uh, their own different key figures and key people and all of that. So, uh, you know, having been in both worlds, you know, I've worked with people at the top of both worlds. And I can say that they're just all chill people. Yeah. You know, like, like you know, I've, I've worked with Jerry Junkin about three times. Yeah, he's incredible. I, I, he He's he's incredible he's a funny guy he's really yeah. down to earth for somebody who's like the king of band um whereas i of course have um i've worked with um many top maestros in the in the symphony orchestra room you know essa pekka mm-hmm. uh terry fisher of the U- utah symphony people like tito munoz you know great people yeah. uh they're all just all they're all just super chill Wynton marsalis super chill you know um so while there is a big difference in both worlds, I would have to say, it's still, you know, there's still musicians at the end of the day and there's still people and there's still cool people. And there's also not so cool people. From if we could get a little more granular to like how the ensembles handle differently when you're like scoring for them on the page, what do you find the biggest difference is? Uh, there's a lot of color in wind instruments. I find that when I'm when I'm writing band music, and for some strange reason, whenever I write for the band, I tend I tend to treat it like an orchestra in the sense of I'm thinking about how it sounds orchestrally. So, you know, when people hear my fourth symphony, some people says they they have told me it doesn't sound like band music mm-hmm. because usually I was thinking of the orchestra when I was writing that, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that was only my what seventh or sixth piece for band. Like I don't wow. write for the band much. Nice. Yeah, it, it's, but it sounds it, like you made them count. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit of studying and you know a, a little bit of research and uh, just kept building knowledge, you know. Yeah. But like, uh, it, it's a lot of my symphony orchestra colleagues don't really mess with the band because they look down on it. And I don't understand yeah. that because like the band is or the wind ensemble. I, prefer to call it wind ensemble really mm-hmm. um is capable of some beautiful stuff like i said yeah. that, that that fourth symphony of david maslenka is as great as a Mahler symphony i would have mm-hmm. to say 
and just because there's so much color in it, it's exciting to listen to and it's soul touching, you know. Yeah. And just like some, I, I ain't gonna say who. I, I've been doing really good at not naming that. Well, actually, no, I'm lying. <laughs> I've been drop name dropping like, like crazy. <laughs> but I'm not gonna name drop here. There's this one colleague. Yeah, colleague in the band world that said that strings don't make them don't don't touch them emotionally, and you know, to mm-hmm. each their own. I, yeah. I don't understand that statement at all. This person yeah. also really doesn't like the Hindemith Symphony in B flat for some reason. Like this, this Symphony yeah. in B flat slapped your mother in the mouth like that that much. Wow, um, I like the Symphony in B flat. I think it's really interesting. It's a and cool like, piece. It's well yeah. constructed. It's well written. But yeah. for some strange reason, this person just hates it. Whatever. Yeah. I think it's but, a really interesting early experiment of like, what is a wind ensemble capable of? In as much as like, I think there's a lot of artistic merit to a piece like Lingerture Posey, where like there's so many wild ideas and really interesting colors and effects because of like how much Granger insisted on like trying to capture some musical ideas literally rather than like, close approximations yeah 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 you're absolutely right but that and and that's all like early experiments with the wind band you know yeah and to see how far it's involved from it's Mm -hmm. evolved from those pieces you know um and it also strikes me that the the wind ensemble is still a fairly new medium like it was only founded in the early 1950s as a concert ensemble you know, by mm-hmm. Frederick Fennell, we had the East Midland yeah. Ensemble. And what Fennell did with that, you know, commissioning, uh, you know, try to play a little bit of catch up by commissioning composers for the repertoire. Mm-hmm. We're still doing that. So, like, it, it does interest. The, I guess, you know, you know, like I said, my heart is with the orchestra, but we, mm-hmm. we can do some things better. Like, every time I go to a band concert, usually all the composers on the program are living. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much with the orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much of that is that, um, well, I, this is something I talk about with uh, one of my professors a lot. We talk about the reality of um, how a lot of orchestral donors want to hear a very particular kind of composer on a concert or a very particular kind of music on a concert and how there's kind of been this stray of a lot of modern composers, definitely not all, away from something that a a less musically literate audience can really understand efficiently. And mm-hmm. and if I, I'm personally of the opinion that if there are so many emotional blocks in your music that it's difficult for um, an audience to understand, it's going to be really difficult to get plays. You're absolutely right. Like like name the last time you heard Pierre Boulez in concert yeah, or the Anton Weber in five pieces. They're really, really cool, well-constructed pieces of music. I think the Weber mm-hmm. has some beautiful moments in it, yeah. but it just doesn't get played because it's just like it's tough to listen to, even though it's four yeah. minutes long Yeah, in total. Like the whole yeah. piece, all five pieces are four minutes long, but that four minutes would be like 30 minutes to some people. And, you know, you yeah. have to tread carefully because it's like, you know, people see the word, Schoenberg, they get scared. Yeah. Even though like Girl Leader is such a it's in, in the late romantic style, transfigured yeah. night, all of that, but they see Schoenberg. Oh man, don't let them see that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I had a piece I was thinking of. I think Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima is a really interesting one, even though you can, you can, I think, make a really good case as to why that should be on a program a lot more because of the emotional weight of it. But at the same point, I think you could probably also make the case that it should be more sparing for that same reason. It's such a heavy piece of music. Yeah, you you definitely have to program that in special cases, like on a one-off concert, on, on a special occasion, like a themed concert or something yeah. like that. You know, with pieces like that, you really have to be careful where you program it and how you program it so that it fits into, you know, um, it fits into the mold and really doesn't it, it get it piques the audience's interest rather than drives them away. And and you know, with programming, you know, really band directors are really good at programming because they program to a theme mostly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have to say the great one of the best examples of programming in my for my field, the orchestra orchestral field, was when uh, my uh, my mentor and friend uh, Edwin Outwater who uh, is music director of the San Francisco Conservatory, uh, did one of my pieces with the San Francisco Symphony. And it was a 4th of July concert. It was like a Patreon concert, right? So we had the Seuss on there. We had Gershwin. We had, um, what else did we have? We had some John Williams on there. I think it was a John Williams piece. I think it was a John Williams piece. But he's a great programmer. He programmed a Jennifer Higdon piece, which he did at Stern Grove, and it was it worked and then he did one of my pieces and he did reflection on a memorial which is my depressing string orchestra piece but he had great music for doing this you know we had a patriotic concert right it's fourth mm-hmm. of july right yeah. but it was in 2021 yeah. so in the summer of 2021 we were all coming out of the pandemic and he his case was he turned to the audience and was like you know it's been a really tough time for us all um, I'd like to offer this piece here as solace and reflection. I hope you can reflect on it with me. Um, I hope that it brings you some sort of comfort in these very toughling times. He played it, and they did two performances of it. Standing ovation each time. Great review in the paper. And that was, that's, that's awesome. what made Esapeka say, come back and meet me. That's awesome. But that was because of the way he yeah. programmed it. He was, he was yeah. able to sell it to the audience and to the critics yeah. by saying, okay, this is how this is how I suggest you listen to it, you know? Um, and uh, you're welcome to open open your mind and listen to it this way, you know? But that's just a case where you think reflection on a, on a memorial, a depressing piece like that wouldn't fit after yeah. on, on a celebratory concert like that. Well, yeah. like I said, you have to do it. You have to program very carefully. Yeah. I think programming can change the game for a piece. I think I, so. Um, in the fall of this year, I was giving my tuba recital, and um, are you familiar with a composer named Jakob Terveldwies? He's um, an avant-garde yeah. electroacoustic composer from the Netherlands. Um, his music is really interesting. He's one of the really early new wave. Um, like instrument with electronics composers, like instrument with electronics as chamber music. And he writes a ton of saxophone rep and his music is really cool. It's honestly pretty accessible. It's really influenced by hip hop. You might like some of his stuff, but uh, his, um, he has a piece called Grab It, which was written in 1999 and is like now one of the standards of standards of tenor sax repertoire. 
and it's it's for tenor sax and electronics and um but it's been transcribed for everything because it's awesome and it samples all of these um interviews from the documentary scared straight about like uh yeah and yeah, so yeah, yeah so he's <laughs> he's sampling all these interviews with these prisoners and the piece is about how like is about like you could lose control of your life so grab it by the scruff of the neck which is a really interesting theme but the piece like is all over the place it's relentless it's deep it like talks about death and destruction and like losing control of your life it's really heavy and the piece is like nine or ten minutes and so i needed a bit of a chop break after it and i thought i'd railroaded the audience enough i decided to program john cage's 433 afterwards and what I found was it was a really interesting place to put that piece because not only did I get to rest, but the audience got to digest what had just happened and they really needed to sit in silence for a few minutes. And a couple of people came up to that, me. That was after a good the, place to put that. Yeah. And a couple of people come up, came up to me after the show and were like, you know, I think I really enjoyed the cage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which not something I'd ever thought I'd hear somebody say. I mean, I also get the meme now of saying I've performed 433 live in concert, which is pretty cool. But I, I think it was I, th th that's what that piece is for. Like, yeah, I think that that piece very much served its purpose and the way you programmed it, it was able to speak to more audiences. Now people like to make fun of it, whatever. Yeah. But it, it, this wouldn't, you know, based on what you told me, it definitely yeah. served its purpose. Yeah. You know? I, I think 433 is a really interesting piece of music because philosophically, because even though I could understand why some people would get pretty short with it, and I definitely did at some portion of my life because I didn't define music in that way. I think trying to draw the idea towards like, is the music the sound of the space or the experience that you had in the concert or the thoughts you had during the piece of music? which I think is a really interesting like way to turn it on its head a little bit and like exactly what John Cage would have wanted. Yeah, it's for that reason that, you know, your performance of that piece served its purpose. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, and I've started to really think about like earning the difficult portions of music, if that make, I don't know if that makes sense, but a piece that comes to mind is Ecstatic Waters. Um, which I think is exhilarating and one of the really underrated works for band. Um, I don't know if that's a piece you know. Who wrote that? Stephen Bryant. No, I don't know that piece. You should check it out. Ecstatic Waters is awesome. There's a really awesome recording by the Marine Band online. It's for um, it's for band and electronics. And one of them, I think it's Movement 4, um, actually has like a 12-tone row as the primary melody for most of it, but it doesn't really sound like it. And so the way I've always kind of thought about it, I've also had, like had the pleasure to work as an ensemble with Stephen Bryan on that piece. It was actually when my la my first year with uh, Dr. Marinello, my last year at Illinois State. Um, the first artist he brought in was Stephen Bryan and it was exhilarating. Um, but in working on ecstatic waters and talking about how like the piece shifts from something that's really innocent to something that's extraordinarily microtonal to something that 
like kind of blows everything apart to something that then like reconstructs it but incredibly mathematically and then heals itself at the end and how like that cycle is what makes the piece powerful and even though there are parts of like preparing the piece that don't always feel the most satisfying like experiencing the arc of it is the point right absolutely i have not familiar with that piece but now i'm gonna have to check it out yeah it's not too long of a listen i think it's like 14 minutes not too long, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I'm so I, I'm I, I'm for a band a lot piece. Of, I think yeah. that's pretty long. For a band piece, sure. I, I'm studying a lot of orchestral music right now. It's like, man, a Mahler symphony. I got a, I got two hours to kill. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Those 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 pieces do get kind of crazy with it. Yeah, but I, I like it. I I I think it's nice to be able to study how to really execute a long gesture well. Right. And, you know, usually the standard size for a large orchestral work is about 15 minutes, maybe 25 minutes, like my most recent symphony. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, how to basically keep the audience's attention for that, that long of a time is always a challenge in itself, you know? Yeah. Like that symphony, like a lot of people tell me that didn't feel like 25 minutes. Usually the performances take 25 minutes. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that I guess that means I did something right, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, what are you writing right now? Well, you talked about the piece for Hartford um, and then the uh, the Utah piece. But are you working on anything else? Yeah. So <clears throat> and this is a project I really have to move to next year. But uh, for Dr. Matthew George at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. I'm writing a symphony in B-flat for band. Oh, nice. Yes, yes, after him, the myth. And That's it was awesome. basically my res my response to that person who didn't like the Hindemith symphony B-flat. So I'm thinking about the, the subtitle is going to be Middle Finger Symphony, maybe. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's not going to. I wish I could do that. You could call it the Stanford Symphony after the Stanford marching band that marched a middle finger onto the football field at the Rose Bowl. I did not know that. Yeah, they there was a time where the Stanford marching band wasn't allowed to be like broadcast on television. They were censored by the FCC, and then Stanford got to the Rose Bowl in sometime in the 2010s, and it was kind of a big deal because the marching band was going to be on TV for the first time in like 50 years. <laughs> and then they marched the middle finger on TV. No, the the reason they were banned was for marching the middle finger on TV, and like, and then fifty years later, they were just like pretty normal. <laughs> no, man. I wish they had done it again. That would have been awesome. It would have been a nice comeback. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, but I I, 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 I need to I need to look that up again. I think it might have been like a protest for the Vietnam War, but I could be mistaken. They might have just been like trying to make a ruckus, but it was in the seventies, so. It sounds like the seventies. Yeah, they were like unfiltered back then. But yeah, that 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 symphony is like my response to that person. And and while it's not going to be sp uh, explicitly in Hindemith style, um, it's definitely going to follow the three movement form. And I'm going to look into how he constructs things and things like that. And it's going to be, uh, I think, yeah, my second symphony for band. But it's just going to be called Symphony and B flat. Cool. Do you invest a lot of? Um or maybe that's a bad way to say it. Do you try to write a lot of your music with that kind of, uh, maybe not connotation, but like your response to things that are going on in the world? Sometimes, sometimes not. A lot of my music mm -hmm. is um, 
more more inward looking about stuff I like to think deeply about and mm -hmm. yeah, the four symphonies like, about space. I loved it. Yeah, that's something I've been like curious about since I was like little. <laughs> so that, yeah. I knew I was gonna write about it at some point. That's so cool. I did. And but like a, a lot of my other music is like it very much is um just like inward looking. Sometimes it responds to the world's events, but that's only if um I'm very much thinking about those world events, like reflection on the memorial was about it was written for a concert about victims of racial violence. This was like late 2020. So, but I opened up the meaning so people can connect to it and, you know, and envision people they lost during the pandemic at that time. Sure. And that's why that pieces have a lot of performances because it's, um, people can, people connected to it quite a lot. But yeah, most of my music is very much just about stuff I like to think deeply about. That's awesome. Um, how did you build your career as a composer? You've talked a lot about like, seemingly like knowing some of the right people at some of the right times and um the importance of entering competitions but if, if you were going to give like like more of a story arc to your composition development um what would you talk about uh yeah it was the results of starting early meeting people establishing establishing those connections early so that mm -hmm. as i got older um those people kept up with me, saw the work I was doing and gave me opportunities. And those opportunities led to more opportunities. I met more people and, you know, I'm now meeting people at the top of the profession, learning how they do things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, learning how they approach, approach it. And then, um, of course, using where I am now to help people that are now coming after me, the, the newer generation, yeah. which is so weird to think about because I, at some point, I was that that newer generation, and now as I'm getting older, as I approach thirty, you know, uh, there are a lot of my younger colleagues who are see me as kind of an inspiration. That's kind of weird, but I guess yeah. so. It's they look up to me. It's like, what? <laughs> but you know, it's like it's it's weird. It's weird, mm -hmm. but it's 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 a kind of a responsibility I have, and you know, I don't really, I'm I, I'm nobody. Like I'm still kind of working my way up. Um, so, you know, when people come up to me and ask for pictures, I'm kind of like, you want yeah. a picture of me? Yeah. I, I find the whole, I find it weird. Um, maybe that's just me. I, I, I don't know. No, but, I totally understand what you mean. The, I, I had like my first, um, encounter like that at Midwest this year. I was in line chatting. It was at Starbucks and I was just chatting to somebody and they're like, wait, you're that guy from Instagram. And I was like, what? Which guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of those. <laughs> yeah yeah it was really funky um but yeah it, but, i mean it's like weirdly surreal and then they'd be like yeah i follow your instagram and like i watched you post about all of this stuff and i listen to your podcast it's like what? yeah that's fine that's crazy that's, yeah it's just fine it's, it's just surreal it, it is a bit surreal because it's like out of all the people some some of the you know some people like to think of themselves as celebrities. Some of them have yeah. actually create created brands off of their composition, which is mm -hmm. that's um that's impressive. You know, merch and stuff like that, and, and more power to you, I guess. I don't mm -hmm. know, um, but yeah, I'm just I'll never get used to that whole that whole celebrity. I just like to be left alone, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, I, I'm just. 
the thank goodness, you know, like I'm not like whenever I go to the Midwest clinic, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not band famous like John Mackey or some of my other colleagues. So I can walk around and nobody will bother me. And I'm just like, yes. I can go over to the Murphy booth and I can talk with uh who do I like to I like to talk with um Aaron Perrine over there. Mm-hmm. Really cool dude. Yeah. Instead of, you know, like John Mackey can't even walk two feet people are asking for pictures. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he can't even he can't even go to the bathroom and sit down and <laughs> yeah, somebody will follow him in. <laughs> yeah, somebody will follow him in and try to videotape him like taking a dump or something. Yeah, I ran in I ran into him on the escalator this year, and I told him I liked his shoes, and then asked him what he was looking forward to at the conference, and he said, "I'm looking forward to eating my vegan burrito where no one can watch me." <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're on that level, I can't I can't imagine I wouldn't. He he, John Mackey. He seems to like reveling. I mean, you seen that Gucci? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He somebody likes... said his somebody said his Gucci was fake. I don't know. I don't. Know. I don't care enough about Gucci to know about stuff like that. I like going to Midwest to like chat with all of the composers. I only get to see like once or twice a year. Yeah, it's a nice meeting spot where everybody convenes and you get to see each other and be like, "Oh, what have you been up to? I haven't seen you in a while." You know, you, maybe yeah. you'll see them like doing stuff on Facebook or something like that, but yeah. there's nothing like talking to them in real life. Yeah, honestly, I don't try to be on social or I try to not be on social media very much. That's how I should say that. Because it's just like, I feel like it sucks time out of my life. It does, yeah. I, that, I hardly post on there and I hardly add up friends, um, but I use it for career stuff. I mean, if yeah. you've ever seen like my Instagram, it's just people I, people I meet, places I go, stuff like that. And that's yeah. mostly for uh people that want to keep up with me and then my facebook is for most of my old teachers and te- uh friends yeah. from high school and things like that they want to keep up with me yeah. along along with other people that i meet along the way mm-hmm. but it's mostly career stuff like my personal life ain't on there nobody's gonna know nothing about my personal life unless you know me in real life yeah. um then you know everything yeah. but it's yeah, social media, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing, especially for you know musicians. But I think it's a really good thing for musicians because we get to see what each other are doing. Yeah. We hardly get to see that. Mm-hmm. You know, we get to see what new music they're doing, who they're working yeah. with, things like that. Some people can abuse it. Some people really yeah. love themselves. And- yeah, there's some people who, unfortunately, people I know that are like, I mean, they they post so much on Instagram. I don't even know what parts of their life are like real anymore. <laughs> yeah, I've always so found it weird when. Yeah, you're right though. But like, I always find it weird when I go to somebody's Instagram. They have like fifteen thousand posts. Yeah. Like, how did you? How you just barely made this account? Yeah. If it's like a hundred posts, fine. But if it's more than like five hundred, and you married the account last year, you, you need to take a step back and look at what you're doing. <laughs> Honestly, it's not that hard to get to 500 posts in like a little over a year. I think I did that, but it was just because I like posted a photo of like my coffee, the book I was reading and my journal every morning for a year (laughs) to trying to build some social media momentum. But it was like, it was really easy. It was just like back on the grind would be the post. And then I just like throw it out. Well, yeah, some people. Some people like to do the, 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 this is my office this week, whatever. Like yeah. they'll post a picture of the concert hall. This is my office. No, it's not your office. Yeah. I, I guess that's where you're working, but it's, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. And I, I don't know how, how can people take selfies? 
<laughs> I, I just never. I don't mind the group selfie because I like the whimsy of it. Yeah. But they, but it's a group. <laughs> it's a group. Yeah, I'm talking about like the yeah. There's one composer colleague. He's much older. Uh, he gets played by a lot of orchestras. He likes to whenever he goes to an orchestra, he likes to post it. It's it's fine. You post about yeah. the orchestra he goes to, but mm -hmm. he'll take a, a selfie of himself sitting in the seat. Like, yeah, we don't need. We don't yeah, need do it on the stage so all the musicians can be in it. That's what's special about it. Not even that. Like, yeah, maybe it's just me. But like, there's another one who is in a high profile position. He likes to before concerts. He likes to do like you, you ever seen somebody do like a selfie video of themselves three sixty. Yeah. He likes to do that while people are like getting settled in their seats and things like that <laughs> without their permission. And you'll see That's the occasional wild. person on the video going, what is he doing? Like, yeah, that's wild. Yeah. I'm, as I I'm, do, you put, you put notes on pages. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's the thing that strikes me is like, I, I enjoy a photo when it's, helping encapsulate the joy I was able to experience in collaborating or just spending time with that group or with that person. And or especially yeah. if it's like a friend I haven't seen in a long time. I mean, that's, that, that's, what's valuable. And like the, this, I mean, to go full circle back to what we started with the human connection of the musical experience, actually, this might be a really interesting way to ask this question. And I hadn't planned to ask this today. How do you feel about like, the advancements of artificial intelligence and people trying to train computers to write music. I, I'm going to say, like, I don't think it'll ever get as advanced as human. It can, it can get convincing, but yeah. And, but I, I don't think composers will ever be out of a job because yeah. people, you know, they will always want to that, 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 that human experience of working with another living human being. Yeah. That, that nothing will replace that nothing will um get to the point where it will take over our jobs or anything like that some people are like deathly scared of that yeah i i think i i was pretty afraid no i i don't think i was pretty afraid of that when i like that i first encountered that idea but something that struck me is like there's nothing there's nothing a computer that can create that is as unpredictable as what a human is capable of. And I think that's what sets us apart. Even if it analyzed like every composer ever, there's so many combinations of notes and tonalities and microtonalities and gestures and rhythmic combinations that somebody could choose. And especially once you consider that, like, I mean, yes, a computer could do the amount of study that somebody does in several composition degrees in a matter of minutes, they don't have all of the human experiences that that person goes through the highs and the lows that are compressed and formulated into the art that those people make. And I think a lot, especially post COVID, there's a lot of desire to work with other people because we were kept inside for so long. That's true. That's true. And like I said, just like, you know, there won't be any AI conductors. Mm -hmm. People are always going to want another human being to lead them. It's just like, it's just not going to work. Like I said, because of, or like you were just saying, that 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 experience of working with someone who's actually living and breathing mm -hmm. and made of meat, just like you are, um, nothing's going to replace that. Not even AI. 
Yeah. So we're, we're going to know when something is written by AI because it's going to tell us. Yeah. And while it's a, a fascinating concept, while it's a fascinating novelty, um, yeah, it, it's not going to, I'm not too afraid that we're going to be replaced by it. Yeah. Is there a kind of piece that you haven't written yet in your career that you would like to write one day? It's funny. It seems like I've fulfilled all of my dream projects this early, but there's this one project that I'm looking forward to getting started soon. Um, it's a piece for Dr. Andy Traxel and the UNT Wind Orchestra. He premiered my fourth symphony and it was so great to work with Andy and the work with the band that I want, I wanted to write. I told him immediately, I want to write something especially for you. So, um, yeah, we're going to get the conversation started on that soon. And hopefully I think we're going to do it like next year even, but yeah, it's, um, a piece for just another wild piece for band. Like, the good thing about his band is that they can do anything. So yeah, because it, it's one. No kidding. It's the it's the it's basically the second version of Corporon's band. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, are you willing to talk about any of the ideas you have digesting for that project? Not, not. Uh, well, well. How do I want to say this? I, I'm not solidified on these ideas. All I know sure. is. It's uh definitely gonna be something in multiple movements. Cool. For for a large wind band, something that very much reflects the artistry of that band, reflects the artistry of uh artistry of um Dr. Traxel. And uh thinking about calling it some, calling it something like harmonic voyage or like I don't want to call it concerto for wind ensemble because so many people are writing compositions by that name. Yeah. So I want to do something different. I don't want to be like everybody else. That's just me. Yeah, I I think like I, I don't have a I guess I don't have a personal beef with things that are as simple as like concerto for wind ensemble, but it seems kind of like a cop out to me. Well, you know, like you know, the, I can say this because he's established. You know, the composer yeah. Jim Stevenson. Yeah, I like Jim. I met Super Jim the first nice time guy. recently. He's lovely. He's one of my favorite humans. Super nice guy. Super nice guy. Like he'll sit down with you. He'll have a conversation yeah. with you at, at Midwest. He he had a, a couch going on. Yeah. The year I'm, uh, I think 2021, I went. He had like a couch. We sat down. Everything. Um, super cool guy. But he's writing a concerto for wind ensemble. I think it's like the sixth or seventh piece I've seen by that name. Yeah. So it's just like nah. I'm yeah, Kevin Days is the hot one right now. So I've heard, and it's it's an exhilarating piece of music. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your, to your point, yeah, there's a lot of people writing concerti for wind ensemble right now. I could see why that would get a little tiring. Well, you know, I, I can't even, I can't even talk cause I'm writing symphony for band and all this. So I mean, yeah, that's I'm, cool though. Yeah. And I'm, the fact that I'm calling it symphony and B flat, like I've, I've copped out too. Like I'm not, I'm I don't nobody, know. I'm nobody important. Yeah. Or perfect. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I think the symphony in B flat idea is really cool. And I wasn't trying to talk down about like people that decide to go that route with the their titles. No, I just fine. it's just not for me. Um, like I'm I'm working on a euphonium concerto right now, and uh, the title is Eyes Always Watching. And the I was trying to play on like, 
Is it about the audience watching the performer or the performer watching the audience or the performer feeling like everyone, regardless of who's in the audience, is always watching them? Or are they always watching everybody else that's playing euphonium and trying to do something different? And so it's like playing with all of these ideas as the movements go through. And it's it's also kind of a wild piece um, in that it instead of being like a typical like three or four movement concerto it's a seven movement concerto but all the movements are like less than three minutes see that that's creative and that's that's mm -hmm. actually different you know mm -hmm. that's different and it makes you think you know but you know like i'm 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 guilty of using the generic titles too so don't worry oh but as yeah, far as this this piece too. i'm writing for uh andy Traxel, it's definitely going to have some sort of name even though it's technically going to be a symphony or concerto for wind ensemble nice. you know mm -hmm. so but it's not going to be called that <laughs> so <laughs> nice um yeah well i've i've done something like that recently too i wrote this like i've been calling it a symphonic poem but like it follows a loose enough symphonic structure that you could call it um a symphony i guess um, it, but it's most based on Pines of Rome, which is why I've like been calling it a symphonic poem. But instead of being like scenes around Rome, it's about some of my favorite national parks where I've gone hiking. Um, and that piece is called Interior, like the Department of the Interior. Um, and I thought that was an interesting twist on something like that. But yeah, That's and cool. I, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Um, is there an artist you haven't worked with yet, um, whether like a soloist or a conductor? Or maybe another composer that you'd like to take a lesson from or meet that you uh, want to meet at some point? That's um, it's a really wide-ranging question. Um, that I'm still trying to figure out, actually. It's, um, I mean, I've had the great pleasure of working with amazing people in both fields, you know? Mm -hmm. Um. You can do one of each if you want. I don't care. <laughs> well, in the band world, I mean, I, it'd be cool to work with the Marine band. I mean, they're really, really good, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're so, amazing. Yeah, you know, in that, that world of Marine band. And then in, in the orchestral world, um, uh, who do I want to work with there? I mean, I'm, I don't know. I, Berlin? It's interesting. <laughs> Berlin would be yeah, cool. Yeah, Berlin would be cool. That's a bit out of my reach, though. But mm -hmm. it, it's a cool idea. Uh, bit out of your reach right now. <laughs> we'll see. You know, nothing's guaranteed. And uh, I don't know. Is that something that I don't know either. <laughs> something that David said to me once, or David Mislanka said to me once, that I, I'll always be really struck with, um, is that the only thing you need to be a good composer is um, a good work ethic and twenty years. <laughs> Oh well, so, <laughs> I'm doing well so far. I'm at the 17 yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's very that's very thought provoking though, and and right. Yeah, I, I think that was that might have been like some of the most hopeful advice I've ever gotten. Because <laughs> there are some people who get really cynical and just like to talk about how there's there's like not a lot of teaching jobs and how like uh, commissions are so scarce, but I. I don't know. I, you, I, you always got to look at the bright side of things. I yeah. mean, there's, there's work out there for you. Trust me, yeah. there's some mediocre people, musicians that get plenty of work. Yeah. And one thing that always struck me about Maslanka was he knew how to say, like, 
kind of exactly what you needed to hear, but without like ever he but he would never lie or stretch the truth about it. It was always just very matter of fact. Like all you need is to work hard and give yourself 20 years. <laughs> yeah, that's what that age experience, you know, all that stuff informs yeah. you know everything you yeah. you know end up teaching later or talking about mm -hmm. later. And that dude has had a lot had a lot of experience. So Oh yeah, definitely. Um, what do you think the, I mean, this is kind of a broad question. Do you have any thoughts about the state of composition right now? Yeah, well, about, I mean, it's evolving and thank goodness we're lo living in the time where we can do whatever we want, yeah. you know, rather than uh, just work with these rules that we're given and write in a certain style or a different academic, um, style, you know, school of composition you know is pretty mm -hmm. much free game now and so it's a it's a great time to yeah to yeah compose because you can write whatever you want one one thing that strikes me um so every year um university of illinois has the illinois conducting symposium and it's usually in february and um one of my privileges for being one of the um athletic bands tas is i get to go hang with all of the people at all of the social events because they invite the band staff and i've met a profound amount of people in the last two years who've said you know i love how much new music we're commissioning but it really bothers me how a lot of music isn't very melodic anymore because it becomes really difficult to sell my groups on it and to sell my audiences on it and i thought that was really interesting Depends on who they're getting the right for them. Because I think I've yeah. seen nothing but melodic music yeah. being written nowadays. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I I can't say the same for me personally, but I might also just not be looking in all of the right places. Well, are they talking melodic in the sense of melody, like memorable melody? Yeah. I, I've seen plenty of that. Well, cool. What? Not, not, that if I, you not, don't... not that I can sing, but yeah, because I can't sing. Yeah, so. if you don't mind me asking, like, where where are you hearing this? Because like I'm not finding very much of it. I find a lot of music right now is like really focused on like how complex and how interesting can you make the texture, and then they just kind of move on. Well, let's see. Uh, it's mostly uh, some of the colleges I've visited, where mm -hmm. I've given like composition master classes, mm -hmm. where composers are now five six seven years younger than me yeah a lot of them are focused on the melody and not so much about the complexity oh, of the music that, sometimes yeah, that makes a lot of sense because like most of the people i'm coming in contact with are my age or older than me yeah sometimes they'll find a way to um integrate the melody with the texture and that mm. really makes it really interesting you know um mm. i think the reason my music has had so much success is because it's unintentionally melodic in the sense that I, there, there are several things in my music that get stuck in people's heads and I don't know how, you know, they, yeah. they come away and they, they're, they're singing the stuff and I'm just like, you like that? Like that that's what sticks with you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I find it interesting how other people perceive yeah. music. I think, yeah, I do too. I think, there's something very specific about having um, a compositional voice that is really unique. And one of the things that strikes me about um, 
your music, and granted, I haven't listened to probably as much of it as I'd have liked to, um, but especially from my recent listens to the Fourth Symphony, is that like, especially with all of the like how, how detail oriented you were and making sure like all of the decisions that you made were really what you felt. I think it sounds like you, and I think people are really attracted and really easily remember something so authentically made. And I think that's the power that uh, David Maslanka brings to a lot of his music too. I mean, part of the reason Symphony Number no. 4 is so gripping on top of the reason that it's so expertly crafted is David didn't put it on the page if he didn't really want it. I was actually having a conversation with somebody pretty recently about how like, um, they were saying like, oh, I think he should have written the opening horn solo for Euphonium because like it would have fit the register better and it would have been more present in the hall. And I was like, I think he did that on purpose because solo French horn and the way that it's going to be oriented on the stage makes it like faint and from a distance, like it's being called in as opposed to like really present and boisterous, like a tenor soloist, which is probably what you would have achieved scoring it in Euphonium. Yeah, yeah, it definitely gives it that kind of um that that that, that di distant type of feel to it. Um, but yeah, like everything he intended, he meant, which is why you know we still are looking at the handwritten copies of that music yeah. in his handwriting because it's like yeah. that's that's what he wrote. You know, that's what he intended right there. And you know, yeah. and the fact that it's authorized by his son, yeah. Like, Come on, man. Don't question that, man. Yeah. Like, it also doesn't hurt that, like, he is probably the best penmanship on music paper of anybody I've ever seen in my life. It's so perfect. It's very readable, yeah. 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 I think that's awesome. Um, if there was a young composer listening to this interview, um, what advice would you give them, especially if they were particularly new to composition? Um. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. That it's it's advice that I wish I had been given when I was younger, and uh, it's definitely uh, write a lot, uh, work on your craft as, as much as you can. Uh, write for your friends, you know, if you have friends. <laughs> uh, find find um, colleagues that you would like to write for, because you only get better by listening to what you wrote. Mm -hmm. played by real people and you know nobody can be but you but yourself so be as authentic as you can in your your music because musicians can sense when you're faking you know yeah. they can sense when you're bsing them and you don't want to do that mm -hmm. um and you don't want that to your audience too your audience you want to be able to connect to your audience so that they like what they want to hear or like what you're they're hearing and want to hear it again you know and uh yeah just just that that's awesome um actually so this is something i thought of just now how much of your music in, like especially in the early portion of your career how much of your music did you just give to people like did you just give away not much no most of that stuff i just kind of worked on and I, it now sits on a hard, hard drive and it still sits mm -hmm. on a hard drive mm -hmm. i just wrote for myself mm -hmm. but like when when you got a little older and were like studying at school did you just like give music away to your friends not really Whoa. Not really. I, I just wrote and sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, the opportunity arose for a concert presentation. I'm like, hey, will you do this? Uh, you know, and I did a lot of TCU. 
where mm-hmm. I wrote a violin concerto for one of the uh, the artist diploma students. That's awesome. Now plays Irish music for a living. Imagine that. That's right. Had I known that back then, I probably wouldn't have understood. But anyways, <laughs> um, he, I said, I came up to him after his recitals. I want to write a violin concerto for you. And I said, he said, okay. And then I did it. And then we, we played it about three times and recorded it. So you never know because it, it was it was it was a very fascinating piece, um. Yeah, but I, I mostly wrote in you know whatever happened happens. So, and like throughout high school, like it really wasn't any opportunities for my music to get played besides by the mm-hmm. band. But we're always working on other stuff that I, I just wrote for myself. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's. I think that's an experience a lot of people have. One of the ones I I've been having pretty recently, like, um, I didn't take a break from composition, but I took a break from school for a while, and then coming back, it's been really interesting having all of these pieces on the hard drive that are that are pieces I'm pretty proud of and have been performed at least once, and um, hearing people say like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a piece for my recital, and saying like, oh, I think I might have something that might work for you. Um, and then just trying to give it away, especially like solo stuff. Cause like, I mean, it's pretty easy, um, especially right now, but. Yeah, you can, as long as you, you might find that you have stuff already there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. really cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much for sitting for the interview, dude. This is rad. This was fun, yeah. I'm, thanks for being an, an easy interviewer. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, if do you want to drop your social medias like you don't have to if you don't want to i just like to ask sure i can i mean i got my website uh masonianmusic.com uh and then my instagram where i post most of my career stuff is quinn mason composer at quinn mason composer awesome so you'll yeah there there are no shirtless pics on there it's just (laughs) you don't thirst trap your audience absolutely (laughs) like like some trombonist i might know (laughs) I don't know who you're talking about. That's but okay. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to know. But it's like you know, I'm not really, I'm not really marketable. So all I got, all I have is my musical talent. So that's all you're gonna find on there. Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks so much. Absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Musical Trick Artista the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.